Imagine someone living in, say, 1780 in the United States of America and still paying the sugar tax that was enacted by the Sugar Act of 1764 imposed by the British Parliament. Or you can imagine someone or others paying the colonial taxes that were imposed via the Townsend Acts of, 19, of 1767. These were taxes on things like paper and lead and paint and things of that nature. Or perhaps to make it a little bit more vivid in your mind, imagine that you lived during that time, say around 1780, and you went over to a friend's house and you were having tea in the dining room when all of a sudden you see three British soldiers make their way into the dining room having emerged from their respective places of sleep. You look at your friend and your eyes start veering momentarily towards the three British soldiers that emerged. And you're connoting with your eyes a kind of curious expression, saying, like, what are these British soldiers doing making themselves at home in your home? And your friend kind of quietly whispers to you, and he says, isn't this what we're supposed to do? Isn't this what the king wants? And you whisper back, and you say, no, we celebrate our independence four years ago. If you get a picture of what that would look like, somebody living as though they're still under a king that they weren't under, you get an idea of what it so often looks like for Christians who, even though they have been freed from the tyranny of sin, nonetheless live as though they are still under that tyrant. They are like prisoners who are sitting in open jail cells whose sentences have long since been commuted, whose prison doors have long since been opened, and what they need is a re-proclamation of the gospel of their declaration of independence in Jesus Christ. For someone to come and say, no, you've been set free. There is another who has stood in your place and has took the curse of the law on your behalf. You are freed from the penalty of sin. You are freed from the power of sin. And with that re-proclamation, there should come also, I would argue, some clarification. Because for the Christian, liberty does not equal autonomy. And although we have freedom, it is not just a freedom from certain things. It is a freedom unto other things. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to consider a subject that has long been loved by New Testament Christians from the first century and beyond. The subject of Christian freedom. The freedom of the Christian. How shall we approach this endeavor? Well, there are many ways in which we could go about it. This survey could be undertaken via many routes, but we can't traverse them all. So we're going to take one route, which I'll present to you in a moment, but I also want to just briefly give you another route that can be taken, and I hope to just take it briefly with you so as to stir your affections for what God has done and to stir your affections for the Word of God. You could look at the freedom that God has given and the slavery that man has put upon himself via sin throughout redemptive history. You start in the first book of the Bible, you start in Genesis, and you see the freedom that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. You can eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their freedom was not a freedom from God in the sense of like apart from God. It was a freedom under God. But we know the story. Adam and Eve both sinned. And they forfeited their freedom and they became slaves of sin. And through Adam's sin, his posterity would become slaves to sin and creation would be subjected to the bondage of futility. More about that later. 
But then we go on and we see how God shows Himself to be the great freedom giver in places like Exodus, where He is the one who frees His people from the clutch of Pharaoh, setting them free. Then you go into the book of Leviticus, for instance, and you see in Leviticus 25 that Yahweh prescribed a day that would happen on the 50th year, and it would be on the 10th day of the 7th month of the 50th year. It would be a day where freedom liberty would be proclaimed to all the inhabitants of the land. It was known as the year of Jubilee. It was a time where debts would be canceled, where property would be restored to its original ownership. A time when those who were in servitude would go free. You could look at the book of Judges and you could see the cycle that Israel went through over and over again. That in their rebellion against God, in their sin, with that came oppression and they were oppressed by other nations. But then they would groan. And then they would cry out to the Lord. And God in His grace over and over again in the book of Judges would raise up a deliverer. He would raise up a Jephthah. Or raise up a Gideon. Or raise up a Shamgar. Or raise up one, one judge or another to deliver the people and to give them freedom. You see this illustrated even more vividly when you see the kingship. And during the different kings that we see... During the different kingships that we see, we know that the righteous kings in Israel who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, so oftentimes we see very clearly in the Scriptures that they led people into a place of liberty and prosperity, and at times the text notes an expansion of the kingdom. But where there were unrighteous kings, those who did evil in the sight of the Lord, those kings put Israel and Judah on respective paths towards Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. And the illustrations could go on. But all of these pictures well previewed the ultimate freedom that would come through Yahweh's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but through the Son of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who sets His people free from a tyrant much stronger than Pharaoh, namely Satan. And He set His people free by becoming the Passover Lamb who bore their wrath. Jesus proclaimed freedom to the prisoners. We see in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, him quoting Isaiah 61, that he was sent to, among other things, proclaim liberty to the captives. And he proclaimed the liberty much greater than the liberty proclaimed during the year of Jubilee. It was a freedom from the debt of sin against Almighty God, as opposed to just temporal debts. As opposed to the cycle that Israel went through over and over again in the book of Judges, right? Sin, and then oppression, then groaning, then deliverance. Back to sin, and then oppression, then groaning, and deliverance. Jesus says, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And unlike Israel's kings, Israel and Judah, those kings who at their best could secure some measure of temporal freedom, but could not secure the spiritual freedom of people. At best, those kings can only do so much. Secure a temporal freedom for only a certain amount of time. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the great King, laid down His life for His people. And He secured spiritual freedom for His people forever. As well as a coming prosperity in the new heavens and new earth that is beyond comparison. So that's one route. And the reason why I mention that is because when you read the Word of God and you can see the way redemptive history paints this beautiful picture in the Old Testament and you have these types and shadows in the Old Testament which are fulfilled 
And they reach their fullest expression in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully that excites you and helps you understand what Christ has done and the freedom He secured for you via Old Testament pictures. But the route we'll take is a little bit different. The route we'll take is by tracing the use of particularly a beautiful word that's used in the New Testament. The word eleutheria. Back in 1992, there was a uh, Tom and Jerry animated movie that came out during that time. And there was a scene where there were these two people. They were the villains. It was, it was a man and a woman. And I think they were talking about how they were going to preserve their ill-gotten gain. And as so happened in animated movies in those days, all of a sudden people would be talking about something and then one of them would break out into song. Well, the man and the woman are talking about how they're going to keep their ill-gotten gain. And all of a sudden the woman begins to sing, money is such a beautiful word. Well, when I think of the word eleutheria, I think of it as such a beautiful word. I think of not only eleutheria, but we're going to see the verb form of that, eleutherao, as we consider our study today. Eleutheria is the Greek word for freedom. It just means freedom. Eleutherao is the verb form of that. To make free. To set free from bondage. That word for freedom is used 11 times in the New Testament. We're going to consider most, if not all, if some of the other ones come out extemporaneously, we're going to consider most of the uses of that word in the New Testament in today's message. It's used 11 times, and I hope by the time that we're done, you will say that is a beautiful word also. And when you think of freedom, you think of the context in which these words are used. This word is used. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this down into four parts. We're going to consider the freedom we have We're going to consider what we have been freed from. We're going to consider how we ought to use our freedom. And we're going to consider the freedom that we look forward to. So we have four headings. I want to note, by way of qualifier, this will not be comprehensive. The headings, I can't include everything that could be said about each one of those topics. So what I'm doing, by and large, is tracing the use of that word, eleutheria, and the verb form of that. Freedom and to make free. So first, the freedom we have. We see that in Paul's epistle to the Galatians where this word is used. Paul's epistle to the Galatians has been referred to as the Christian's Declaration of Independence. It is, in my opinion, a kind of miniature form, a miniature letter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. In this six-chapter epistle, you see grand themes like the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Christian life that flows from belief in that gospel take center stage. If you were to look early on in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, namely chapters 1 and 2, you would see Paul make the case for the authenticity of his apostleship. And he's doing that to bolster and support the case he's making for the grand themes that I just mentioned. And when you think of those grand themes, justification by faith, being declared righteous in the sight of God by faith, or the gospel of Jesus Christ, you should associate that with freedom. The first use of that word eleutheria in Galatians chapter 2 comes in Galatians chapter 2 verse 4, where Paul refers to, quote, false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So the false brethren that are identified in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, they are known as Judaizers. 
The Judaizers were those who tried to find a happy medium between justification by faith in Christ and justification via law-keeping, circumcision, and keeping the Mosaic law. I'm all for happy mediums. I'm all for both end when the shoe fits. But in this case, as becomes very clear in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, the shoe can only fit on one foot, and that's not justification by law-keeping. It's justification by faith alone. Just like a little arsenic in your chicken soup can turn a good meal into a poison, that's what works does when you try to add it to grace. It's like you take the true gospel and you turn it into an anathema. You turn it into a false gospel. Well, the Judaizers sought to include circumcision and law-keeping. Circumcision specifically and law-keeping generally as ingredients into the recipe of salvation. Now, if you were to scan through Galatians, you would see that Paul referred to this as a different gospel, another gospel. We see him use that language in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He says that if any man or angel, even if he or even of his co-workers preached any other gospel than the one that he had originally preached to the Galatians, he said that such people were to be accursed. He even said it twice. That's how strong it was. And you're like, well, what was the false gospel that these people were preaching? It was faith in Jesus Christ plus circumcision and law-keeping. You might say faith in Christ plus works. Paul would go on to say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, that if righteousness, right, if being right in the sight of God could happen via law-keeping, then Christ died in vain. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. In Galatians chapter 3, he would go on to show how even Old Testament Abraham was justified by faith. In Galatians 3, 6, he quotes Genesis 15, 6, to show that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He then goes on and he shows that even the law itself bears witness that a person cannot be justified by law keeping. He quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed is every man who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. He goes on right after that to say that justification in this, justification by the law in the sight of God like doesn't happen. That is clear. It is evident. And then he goes on to quote Habakkuk 2.4. For the just shall live by faith. So this is a case that he labors over and over again. The good news is not that Christ did, you know, most of the heavy lifting, and now if you just secure your forgiveness through some law-keeping and work-doing, you can stay forgiven in the sight of God. That's a false gospel. That and every other reworked version of it is not the gospel. The good news of the gospel is, to use language from the Apostle Paul when he's speaking in Acts 13.39, everyone who believes... Everyone who believes in the person and work of Jesus Christ, everyone who believes, is freed from everything from which they could not be freed by the law of Moses. So there's a freedom that comes through Jesus Christ that cannot come through the law. The law could reveal sin. The law could not forgive sin. The law could show a person that they were sinful. But the law cannot cleanse a person from their sin. As Paul wrote to the church of Rome, after a long argumentation that would be followed by more argumentation, he said in Romans 3.28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Okay, 
back to Galatians 2.4. In Galatians 2.4, Paul referred to false brethren who were secretly coming in. These false brethren apparently acted as though they believed the doctrine of justification by faith alone and the gospel, but it becomes evident that that wasn't their position. So he says that these people were false brethren who came in to spy out their liberty, to spy out their freedom. Now, what that means contextually is there was somebody like Titus, who was a co-worker of the Apostle Paul, who was among the assembly. Titus was a Gentile. Specifically, Titus was a Greek. So when these false brethren came in, and you could look at the context in Galatians chapter 2, when these false brethren came in, they're looking at somebody who I would call Exhibit A, Titus. Titus was, if you will, Exhibit A of how a Gentile could be right in the sight of God, could be a fruitful Christian without having undergone circumcision and coming under the law of Moses. So these false brethren were spying that out. You have this guy here, he's a Gentile, and he hasn't adopted the Mosaic law and put that burden upon his shoulders. He's not been circumcised. They were spying out the liberty that New Testament Christians had and exercised. It's more than that, but that was part of it in the immediate context and what was going on. Let me say this too, just for a little bit of New Testament theology. Circumcision, at the end of the day, when you read through the New Testament and you see that reference like repeatedly, it was neither here nor there. Right? Paul even says circumcision or uncircumcision avails anything. You look at somebody like Timothy. When Paul takes Timothy on his journey with him, in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, when he takes him on his missionary journey, he has Timothy circumcised. And the reason why he did that was because Timothy was half Jewish and half Greek, and having Timothy circumcised would allow easier points of entry into, say, the synagogues. Timothy wouldn't have an unnecessary roadblock in front of him when he went to preach the gospel. So Paul wasn't obscuring the gospel when he had Timothy circumcised, but to have Titus circumcised in that context would be to compromise the gospel. It would be to say, I'm affirming that for him to be right with God, he needs to do more than believe the gospel, having truly repented and trusted in Christ. Paul said in Galatians 2.5 that he wouldn't even yield to such ones for a moment when it came to that. So what's the liberty that Paul spoke of here? It's the Christian reality that nothing is to be added to saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ in order to be right with God. That's the liberty that he's speaking of most immediately. He uses that word eleutheria in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 where we read, I'm quoting from the New King James, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So he's telling them, stand in that liberty, stand in that freedom. And if you say, well, what does that mean? You just look ahead to verses 2 through 4 and you see, he tells them that if anyone were to think that they could add to their righteousness by getting circumcised, Christ would profit them nothing. He said that anyone who was circumcised and makes himself, essentially makes himself a debtor to keep the entirety of the law and that they've been estranged from Christ and the principle of grace. They're not standing in that grace anymore. They've moved from standing in that principle of grace. It's strong language. Now, at this point you might be thinking, that's all well and good. But i got to say, I didn't find myself tempted this week 
to read through the book of Leviticus and start living by the legal precepts that were established for the people of Old Covenant Israel. You might say, I wasn't struggling this morning trying to decipher whether or not I was ceremonially clean or unclean to come to worship. I wasn't trying to figure out whether or not I could actually still offer a guilt offering when there are no more Levitical priests around and a temple for me to do it. I just wasn't doing that. In other words, you might think that you are being told about something, a kind of freedom from something that you were never bound to. Well, let me apply this to us in the two following ways. First, if you ever thought you were going to heaven via good works, if you thought good works were contributing to your entry into heaven, you lived under a Judaizer mentality. I can remember as a Catholic, albeit vaguely I can remember this, I remember my happiest points in my Catholicism happened after confession. I loved the feeling of leaving confession. I loved the feeling. I would think something along the lines of, this is the moment right here. This is it. This is great. I know right now I'm forgiven. I wasn't forgiven, but I thought I was forgiven. There was that moment, but I knew. I knew about mortal sins. I knew about venial sins. And it wouldn't be too long until I was waiting for the next confession so I could have that momentary euphoric high of thinking I was forgiven in the sight of God. But unless you're so self-deceived and so self-impressed and you have some knowledge of Roman Catholicism's view of mortal sins and venial sins and so on, you're not going to be impressed with yourself too long. You're going to find yourself knowing that any moment a sin could arise from your fallen frame and your unregenerate frame and it could sever the relationship that you thought you had with God. And so when I look back at myself in those days, I could see that I was bound to a performance regimen that had my eyes not upon Christ but upon myself. And I was on a treadmill of performance that never stopped. Like I said, sin could show up and sever the relationship I thought that I had. And if any of that sounds familiar, you lived under a Judaizer mentality. You lived under a mentality that thinking, whether you thought, yeah, I believed in Christ, but I didn't think I was getting to heaven unless I did A, B, and C. You lived under a Judaizer mentality. I know I did. Now second, let me use the example of our nation's Independence Day. If you look at the 4th of July as uh, only a federal holiday and a day where you light fireworks, well, here you can watch fireworks. Depending on where you live, you can light fireworks and other places you watch fireworks, and it's a day for barbecue. If that's all that you think about when you think of Independence Day, you probably don't appreciate the independence you have, at least not to the point that you would if you thought differently. But if you think about what the early colonists went through leading up to the days of the Revolutionary War, You think about the confiscation of firearms. You think of illegal search and seizures. You think of taxation without representation, right? The colonists had their own legislatures, right? But then all of a sudden, they're supposed to be under the king, but you have British Parliament, which they weren't under British Parliament, legislating, and all of a sudden, there are these different taxes to pay for other things that were happening via Britain's wars and so on. You are living under a lot of things, and if you start to remember all that was happening during that time, it'll help you better appreciate the freedom you enjoy, even if you didn't experience the same exact thing. You think about what you, what you have been spared from. It's not only the things you've been freed from, but the things you've been spared from. You're not under the yoke of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus said they would make yokes so heavy for men's shoulders, they wouldn't lift a finger to help lift them. And they themselves couldn't even carry them. You're not under that. 
You've been spared from that. Or you've been freed from that. You're not under the false legalistic doctrines that assaulted the New Testament church. Get circumcised and you'll be right with God. Don't eat certain foods and you'll stay right with God. You're not even under counterparts to that. Some ancient, some modern. Right? Islam says don't eat ham if you want to stay right with God. Mormonism says don't drink coffee. Gasp, many people say in response to that. Don't drink coffee if you want to be right with God. So it's not only what you've been delivered from, but you look back and you say, well, I've been spared from things. As one who is under Christ, you are spared from being under the law. And as a New Testament Christian, and by God's grace being in this local church, and by God's grace all the days that we are here, you're spared from the misuse of the law. Though we must all be alert even as Paul told the Galatians, so that we not, do not become entangled again with a yoke of bondage. We preach forgiveness through the person and work, through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Alone. Alright, next section, what we have been freed from. We've got a little bit of that in that section. But for this, I want to reference some of the uses of the verb form. That's that word, eleutherao. It means to make free or to release from bondage. Now, a couple of instances for this are seen in um, Romans, and we'll get there a little bit later on. A couple of uses are seen in John's Gospel. But I want to reference uh, Galatians 5.1, because we not only see the noun form there, we see the verb form. So in Galatians 5.1, which we read, the text reads like this, it was for freedom, there's the noun form, that Christ sets us free. I just call your attention to that because it's a beautiful text that tells us who sets us free. Christ is the subject of the verb. Christ is the one who sets us free. To expound upon that a little bit more, we see the verb used again in Romans 8.2, where Paul tells Christians that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set believers free from the law of sin and death. In other words, there's a new principle. There's a new power. There's a new operation at work in believers. Namely, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who brings life and freedom in Christ Jesus versus the operation of sin that brings bondage and death. Right? The law, which Paul said in Romans 7, the law, the law of God, it's good, it's just and holy, but the law couldn't change a person from the outside in. It could, it could be declared from the outside in, but the law could not work that way. It couldn't work from the inside out. And so it couldn't change somebody. So the law would be proclaimed and it would arouse sin, even as Paul speaks of in places like Romans, and it would bring bondage and sin and death. But as a Christian, you have been set free from that. And the principle that is at work in you is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit has come and He has brought life and liberty in Christ Jesus. So what I want to give our attention to right here is particularly how we have been set free from the dominion of sin. The dominion of sin. As Knox Chamlin wrote, Sin is a ruthless tyrant 
that entered the world and established its rule through the transgression of Adam and Eve and henceforth held the whole of humanity in terrible bondage. Now you go through Paul's epistles and you see the picture that's painted. It's frightening and it's terribly clear. If you want to get a portrait, Elder Joe has talked about in previous message in Ephesians, the portrait of the old self. It's not a pretty one. It's an ugly one, right? We were, we were slaves to sin. We were by nature children of wrath. We were alienated from God via wicked thoughts in our minds. The body that God gave us, we used to satisfy one passion of the flesh in one way or another and so on. Our whole selves, our mind and our wills and our emotions and our bodies have been tainted by sin. We found ourselves in bondage to sin. And I think, um, again, to quote the late Knox Chamlin, I think it's interesting that one of the strangest dynamics of this reality is how, quote, sin establishes its mastery over a person by enslaving the self to the self. I think that's a good insight. You should think about when self is on the throne, one of the ironies of that is that it's a way to self-destruction. That when self is on the throne, it's actually a route to destroy the self. This is easily visible when it comes to certain addictions, like alcohol or drugs. To satisfy the self's need to satiate that desire, it leads to self-destruction. But it could also take other forms that aren't as visible. They don't manifest themselves. They could be easily covered. Sin shackles, and it corrodes, and it destroys. But as a Christian, you have been set free from the controlling principle of sin. Through the gospel, you might say the chains that formerly held you, they've fallen, and now you've been armed with spiritual weapons whereby you might mortify the residual opponents of the fallen tyrant of sin. The tyrant has fallen, but his forces, if you will, are still around. You still live in a fallen frame. But sin is not the controlling principle anymore. Now there's a new power at work in you, namely the power that comes from the person of the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean practically? Let me break it down in two ways. One, you have a new love that fights old desires. I'm just reminding you of who you are, Christian. You have a new heart. You have a new love that fights these old desires. With that new heart, you have become a slave of righteousness. That's who you are. Things that you once loved, which were sinful, you don't love those things anymore. You may be tempted towards them, but in your heart you hate them. And things that you were once indifference towards, maybe things that you once hated, things that were righteous, now you love them, now you gravitate towards them, even if you find yourself fighting against your fleshly inclinations to stay away from them. You have what Thomas Chalmers referred to, the expulsive power of a new affection. You have this new affection that is at work in your heart. I remember when I came to Christ, there were those who thought my interest in Christ would pass like a bunch of other things that I had interest in. I, I would, a lot of you could probably relate to these things. We'd get excited about one thing, and that would be my thing. You know, I played golf for a while. I'm like, I want to be a professional golfer. Uh, <laughs> you shouldn't have seen my first tournament. You would, you would have told me right then, like, you're not going to be a professional golfer. Uh, I finished last. You don't need to know that. That's... Um, <laughs> 
Um, when I was younger, I, I thought I was going to be a professional basketball player. That's even more, that's even funnier. And I tried to train my friends to help them be professional basketball players. I had one friend, I'm like, you're shorter than me, so let's get you good at shooting three-pointers. This is going to be your thing. And whatever thing I got into, I kind of latched onto it for a while. And so when I became a Christian, people thought, okay, this is going to be like a bunch of other things that George has in his life. George has interests in things, you know, whether it's this or that or the other thing, and this will be like that. But what you come to find and what you've probably come to find as a Christian is that this new affection stays. Granted, you don't perfectly walk in obedience to the direction that that affection would take you. But the affection stays. You love Jesus Christ. You love Him. And that affection directs and dominates all of the other interests. And that's who you are, Christian. You've been set free. You have a new love that dominates and fights against those old desires. And I want to reinforce this by coming at it another way. Again, your identity is different, but I want to put it this way. You are not a slave of sin. What have you been freed from? You've been freed from the bondage of sin. Christian, you are not a slave of sin. It's just not who you are. You don't have to say, you know, I just have a temper. That's just the way I am. And that's just the way it's going to be. You don't have to try to support your argument by saying, well, my mom had a temper, and my dad had a temper, and my grandmother had a temper, and her mother had a temper. You can try to support your argument. It doesn't matter. If you're a Christian, none of that matters. It's not your identity. You may struggle with a temper. I get that. But you don't have to be identified by that. You've been set free from the dominion of your temper or whatever that other sin might be. It's just not who you are. Romans 6.18 says, And having been set free from sin, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6.22 reads, But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit unto holiness, and at the end, everlasting life. That's who you are. That's the track that you're on. Again, seeing where the verb form of eleutherao, uh, that verb eleutherao is used, Jesus uh, said to the Jews who believed in him, John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. A little bit later on, verse 36, Jesus said, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. This doesn't mean that there isn't a war that is at work in your fallen frame. It just means that there is a different controlling principle. To live like you are controlled by the sin nature as opposed to the power of the Holy Spirit helping you is to be deceived. It's kind of like a small dog that has fooled a bigger dog into thinking that it, the small dog, is the alpha. Bob Ryan and I were speaking about this a few weeks ago. Um, my mom has two dogs. One is a Lassapoo, a small, white, fluffy-haired, fluffy white-haired dog, and a pit bull. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the Lassapoo is uh, named Hudson, and the pit bull is named Brooklyn. 
Now, it's pretty interesting to watch. Early on, when Brooklyn was first around, she would want to play with Hudson. She's so much bigger. Hudson's a small, you know, small little dog. And she would start bouncing around. And he would tolerate that for a time. But then when he had enough of it, he would show his teeth. And he would kind of growl. And she would like back up. Like, okay, I'm not going to mess with him. Like, what do you want? You want me to back up? I'm backing up. I don't want to mess with the Lassipoo. And you'd watch that. And you'd say, like, she's big and strong. And her jaw looks like the jaw of a shark. And like, she, she would make short work of Hudson. But she was intimidated. He fooled her, if you will, into believing that he's the Alpha. And so often it's like that with Christians in their battle against sin. Don't be deceived into thinking that sin is the controlling principle in your life. Sin is not the Alpha. Yes, you have a fallen body. I get it. You have a fallen frame. We have a fallen frame. I know that we have fallen frames. I know that. But there is a principle that is at work in you that is greater than the fallen frame, namely the principle of life that comes through the person of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to encourage you, Christian. Take steps forward. When you sin, confess your sin. Confess your hatred of it afresh. Rejoice in grace that is greater than your sin. And believe that the Holy Spirit will work in you both to will and to do God's pleasure and walk forward wisely. Not being deceived as though sin is the alpha in your life. Now, people can do that. I don't want to get on too much of a, a parenthetical thought here, but if you know, because you've probably done it sometimes in your life, people will talk about sin, right? You've done it, I've done it, as though we're the Israelites talking about how big the giants are in the land, right? Like, you have no idea how strong this sin is. This sin is so powerful. This sin is so dominant. This sin has beat me down for years. And what happens is you end up magnifying the sin. It's like you're kind of pumping it up. You're like, I want you to see how big this sin is. It's big. It's unstoppable. Meanwhile, it's dwarfed by the infinite power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. And oh, what glory God gets when a Christian says, I don't care, I hate sin, but if I fall, you will not deceive me into thinking that sin is the controlling principle. God's Word tells me it's not. And I believe God's Word. And so often, that kind of trust in the Scriptures and God's truth undergirds the exit from that particular battle against that sin. Briefly, I want to consider... Um, how we ought to use our freedom. And this will be, be pretty brief here. Um, there are ways in which we can exercise our freedom uh, properly and improperly. So you have a freedom as a Christian, and sometimes when we speak about the freedom of a Christian, we speak about freedom as it relates to what are often referred to as disputable matters. Right? In the early church, there were Christians who thought, you know what? I am a Christian, I'm, I'm Jewish, I believe the gospel, but I still think I should keep the Mosaic Law as it relates to dietary standards. Like, I just feel like I should. I don't think it's saving me, but I just feel like I should keep it. And then you had other Christians who were like, you're not under that. It, it's very clear, all, Jesus declared all foods clean. We don't have to. And so sometimes what would happen is, and you could see this in 1 Corinthians 8, you could see this in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 10, or all places where you see this. Sometimes Christians, perhaps even unintentionally, would, if you will, flaunt their freedom or exercise their freedom in a way that would cause other brothers or sisters to stumble. Take, for example, somebody who ate food that was sacrificed to an idol, to use an example in the Old Testament. Paul makes very clear, an idol is nothing. And so it's not like contaminating the meat or something like that. 
But somebody might be thinking, wait, you're eating food that was sacrificed to an idol. I think that's wrong. And you're like, no, that's not wrong. It's very clearly okay. And they try to do it, and all of a sudden they sin because they knew in their mind that they weren't at a place where they thought it was okay yet. So they sinned against their conscience and thus sinned. Now, those New Testament Christians, even as we today, we would do well to explain, but also be mindful that if a person feels like they're sinning against their conscience, you don't want to force somebody to partake in anything that would be a sin against their conscience, even if you can make the case biblically that's not sin. Even if you can make the case, say, that you know, not eating according to the Mosaic law, if you were in that first century context, is not a sin. You'd want to be careful that that person does not sin against their conscience. So what's the principle here? Freedom must be guided by love in disputable matters. That's the idea. Paul said, concluding a line of thought in 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. So there are these things that are disputable matters. I'll give, um, I've given some for instances. I'll kind of apply it a little bit more shortly. Second, I don't want us to have a wrong sort of thinking when we come to freedom and liberty. Uh, not being under the Mosaic law does not mean that Christians are without a moral code, right? That's clear. James, for example, says that we are to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. James chapter 2, verse 12. He uses the law of liberty phrase also earlier in James as well. Briefly, this is akin to being under the law of Christ, to use language from Galatians 6.2. So it's not that we are without a moral code and direction. We are under our benevolent Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament epistles are filled with instruction. So don't think freedom from being under the Mosaic law equals antinomianism. Nomianism. As though we are without law at all. No, no, we're under the law of Christ. We're under the direction, under the leadership of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Third, Christian liberty should not be used as a license for sin. We see that in Galatians 5.13 and 1 Peter 2.16. Sometimes Christians might rebuff another Christian who tries to correct certain behaviors, um, address them or correct them, and a Christian will say, this is under Christian liberty. So for example, let's say somebody is watching, I'll I'll try and use something that can, can, when it comes to entertainment, can fall under disputable matters, but some of it's not. So if somebody's watching, say, movies filled with sexual immorality and profane language and the blasphemy of God, and the Christian says, I don't think you should be doing that. The scriptures are very clear that we are not to set evil things before our eyes. We're to set our, our minds upon things that are pure, lovely, honest, praiseworthy, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, rather expose them, and so on. And if a Christian were to say, this is my Christian liberty, I would argue that's a bad use of Christian liberty. Christian liberty is not a license to sin. Christian liberty is essentially the freedom to stay away from sin by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So liberty does not equal license. And if somebody does try to correct you or confront you, it does not mean that they are trying to bring you under bondage and into the Mosaic law. Fourth, a Christian's spiritual freedom should be the soil from which love-filled service springs. Galatians 5.13 reads, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
from the soil of liberty should come service. Love-driven service. And finally, and I'm excited to close here, there's a freedom that awaits us. A freedom that awaits us. The very first use of that word that I love, eleutheria, comes in Romans chapter 8, verse 21. There the Apostle Paul says that creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty, the glorious freedom of the children of God. So right now, the entire world in which we live is in a state of fallenness and decay. You walk outside, you live your life, and you see illustrations of this decay and fallenness all around you. You see that grass withers and flowers fade. You see that fruit, it can go bad. You see that things rust and things rot. You see that stars burn out and so on. This current state described in Romans 8.21 is described as bondage. The creation itself, the created order, the earth and the heavens, the whole created order is subject to the, the law of, the second law of thermodynamics, is it? The law of entropy. According to God's eternal decree and as a result of Adam's sin, Creation is bound to the corruption of this present age. As Calvin noted, the condemnation of mankind is imprinted on the heavens and on the earth and on all creatures. But there is coming a freedom. There is coming a moment when creation itself will be delivered, set free from the bondage of corruption. Jesus told His disciples that at the regeneration, and He wasn't talking about personal, spiritual regeneration at this point. He was talking about the regeneration, the recreation, the renewal of things. It's what appears to be spoken of in Acts chapter 3, verse 21. The times of restoration. When the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, He told them that they would sit on thrones, 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And at that time, the time that Jesus described as the regeneration, that coincides with His return. There would be this renewal and the whole created order would be set free from the bondage of sin and corruption. Per Romans 8.21, there would be a correspondence with the glorious liberty of the sons and daughters of God who have their glorified bodies at that point in time. They are set free from sin. They are set free from the bondage of sin, but now they have bodies that are free from sin. And the creation will be made to correspond with the liberty that the sons and daughters of God have. Amazing. Amazing. So consider the freedom that awaits you, Christian. Both your own and the freedom of the world around you. I love thinking about this. One day, our eyes will behold blades of grass, metals, trees, water that is unaffected by sin. The creation that we look at, it's so beautiful. Don't you just love looking at like, blue skies and green trees? And I, I, just, I just love it. One day, the creation that's so beautiful, that right now screams both beauty and futility, will one day only scream beauty. So take a good look at those thorns and thistles. Because if Genesis 2 and 3 are an indication, they weren't there in the original creation, and they won't be in the recreation. So get your, get your fill of them now. Because one day there's coming an Independence Day, the likes of which we can only imagine. For the believer in heaven, in heaven you will experience freedom from evil desires, evil thoughts, and all that befalls a fallen world. And when Christ returns, that will be an Independence Day like no other. 
you'll experience the culmination of your adoption, which is the glorification of your body, and the world around you will be made to correspond with that glorious liberty, per Romans 8.21. Wow. <laughs> That's an exegetical comment. Wow. <laughs> it's good to celebrate liberty, the likes of which we enjoy in this country, even more so to celebrate the liberty that we enjoy as Christians. And it's good to look forward to the liberty that awaits this world and the sons and daughters of the living God. I close with a gospel invitation to freedom. Christians are freed from the penalty of sin. Christians can be set free only because, unlike Barabbas, Jesus wasn't. Jesus came under the curse of the law, bearing the wrath of God on behalf of all who would look to Him alone for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus read from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue in Nazareth that He was sent to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and to set the oppressed free. So I encourage anyone in this place who hasn't come to this place, this place of forgiveness, to look to Christ for forgiveness and be set free from the penalty of sin. Know that you've been reconciled to God and your debt against Him has been wiped clean. Be set free from the dominion of sin and you can one day be assured that you will be in the presence of God where you will be, having already been, reconciled to God and freed from the very presence of sin forever. How awesome to think that today could be a day where a person experiences true liberty by declaring dependence upon Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. That's where true liberty comes. Dependence upon Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great honor that it is to be sons and daughters of the living God. We make our boast in the cross. We make our boast in the sinless substitute of your Son. We make our boast, Heavenly Father, in the one who rose from the grave for our justification. And Father, we ask that you would help us to walk in the freedom that we enjoy as Christians. I pray that every Christian in this place would afresh today rejoice in the fact that they have become servants of the living God and sin is not the alpha in their life, in their lives. Father, we ask that you would help us to praise you for the freedoms that we enjoy temporally, but in an ongoing way, in a perpetual way, for the freedoms that we enjoy spiritually. And may you help us, Lord, to look up and to look ahead to the freedom that will be ours and that this world will see at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.